This is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome back to the Rebel Author Podcast, episode 38. Today is an extra special day because I have a super, super exciting guest. This week, I'm talking to my very own dad. Yes, today's guest is Stephen de Koningswater. I have been wanting to speak to successful entrepreneurs in a variety of industries to see what lessons I can pull from them into the writing industry and our writing businesses. So I know this may not be exactly what I normally do, but I think it's going to be a valuable exercise over the course of these uh, slightly different interviews to help us widen our knowledge and widen our business skills. Now, even if you don't want to listen to this interview, if you listen to nothing else, then make sure you skip forward to the end of the interview and listen to his rebel story. I might be biased, but oh my God, I just think it is the best rebel story. And it's quite the plot twist for me too. (laughs) So I think you'll enjoy that. Okay, to last week's question, which was, do you write series or standalones? And whichever one you do, why do you do that? Edwin Downward said, I'm writing a series, but I also believe every book in a series should be able to stand on its own. There have been multiple instances where discovering book four or five or another in a series has drawn me in and made me want to go back and start from the beginning. I think, so this is difficult for me because I really want to be writing a series where each book is standalone and that's what I intend to be doing for my um, sort of occult horror, fantasy, uh, urban fantasy, uh, magicians series. Each book will be standalone but also there will be some, you know, overarching connection through the series but um I, I I think unless you write things that are like detective novels or thrillers with the same characters but where they have I guess cases that's really hard to do so for example in epic fantasy it's pretty hard to write standalone um stories when there is a very definitive start and end to a a story arc and therefore it makes it difficult to then pick up book two or book three. Anyway, moving on, Tom Fowler says, it's a mystery series, but each book is a standalone story. I make sure a reader who comes into the series after book one won't be lost. And again, I think that is very typical of that genre. Val Neal says uh, she writes in a series. It was going to be a trilogy, but she drastically overestimated how much story can fit into a single novel. And now she's estimating at least eight or nine books for her first series, which is fantastic because that will be a huge money spinner for you. Erin McKnight says, I tend to write standalones. I haven't thought up an epic enough story for a series or discovered a setting I want to explore more yet. So thank you very much to everybody who answered the question. We had a shout out from Mia Miller should be writing on Twitter this week saying thank you at Rebel Author Pod for a great little episode how to build a fan base hashtag author life and that was in reference to episode 34 which was with Dakota Kraut uh, on how to build an engaged reader base. Thank you to Mia Miller for that lovely shout out. This week's question is, if you couldn't be a writer, what would you be? This week's book recommendation is less of a reading book recommendation and more of a journal recommendation. So I have just switched from using the Clever Fox planner, which I do absolutely adore. I was using the quarterly uh, 13-week planner, but I can't get them uh, into the UK at a reasonable price anymore. I think that's just corona-related. So I have gone back to bullet journaling and my favorite bullet journal is Archer and Olive but again it's really difficult to get Archer and Olive into the UK without paying a fortune in in import tax 
However, my lovely friend's husband pointed out, well, brought my friend uh, Archer and Olive journal from a particular website and she happened to mention this and share the website. So thank you to Susie and Duncan. The website is called Miso Paper, M-I-S-O paper.com and you can get Archer and Olive journals and I brought an absolutely beautiful purple journal with a moth uh, on the cover. Thank you to both and if you are in the market for a new journal I highly recommend these ones and I will leave a link to miso paper in the show notes. So a personal update. Wow, this last week has felt like at least four rolled into one. Um, We were doing, still doing decorating, we were still doing unpacking and we were having to go and get stuff and things for the house like we had. We had no, um, what's the word? We had no uh, cutlery and plates. God, it's been a long week, guys. It's been a long week. Um, we are, we are still waiting for carpets. So my office is still echoey because it doesn't have all my books on my bookcase and we haven't built the audio booth yet, but we will be doing that, um, as the carpets are arriving, hopefully on Thursday. So the day after this goes live fingers crossed anyway. They haven't technically had the delivery of the carpet yet, so we're all getting a bit nervous because we'd all like to sleep on beds now. Um, In terms of work work, I am in the finishing stages of a non-fiction collaboration with Jay Thorne or a couple of books that I have been writing with him, uh, which is very exciting and I have to hand those over tomorrow, which is very exciting. Um, and once I have finished that, then I will be moving on to Trey and also finishing the Anatomy of Prose companion course. Um, and I think at the audio booth will be finished in August. And so that's when I will start recording the audiobook of the Anatomy of Prose. And last but by no means least, I finished painting my office. I did a purple and lilac geom- geometric design, uh, which I am really proud of because I'm a bit shit at DIY. And uh, yeah, I am not the most practical person. I don't even really know how to wire a plug. So... <laughs> My skills lie elsewhere, guys. They lie elsewhere. Um, But yes, so I am really proud of the fact that I uh, did this. And so I will put a photo in the show notes so that you can see. Listener Rebel of the Week this week is S.M. Mitchell. SM says, I guess the reason I'm an author is my inner rebel. I hated reading as a kid with a passion. That is until I went to middle school and there in the library, they had a shelf of books that you couldn't read unless you were old enough. That ticked me off. So I swore I'd read everything on that shelf. The first book I read was Mallory Blackman's Noughts and Crosses and I fell in love with reading and that made me want to become a writer. I absolutely love that your rebellion is what started you to be, like on the journey of being a writer. I think that is such a fantastic rebellion. Um, as, and also, as soon as I read it and knew that it was because you weren't old enough, I was like, oh my God, I'd have been exactly the same wanting to, uh, you know, read the books that I wasn't allowed to read just because of my age. You know, I can just imagine like mini me being all, how dare they? <laughs> I am old enough. Who who are they to tell me I'm not old enough? Anyway, I am rambling. If you would like to be a rebel of the week, then please do send in your stories. It can be any kind of rebellion, big, small, or somewhere in between. You can email your rebel story to rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com or tweet me at rebelauthorpod. No new patrons this week, but I wanted to say a huge thank you to all my current patrons. You help to keep the podcast running, you help to keep me filled with caffeine, and you always make me feel like my potty mouth antics are all worthwhile. So thank you guys very much. Again, um, just sorry, uh, a note on the um, Patreon Q&A that is coming. I haven't forgotten. Uh, I'm just waiting until all my carpets are in and um, I've got my audio set up. 
properly um, and then I will be able to do the live Q&A that I owe you guys. If you'd like to support the show and get access to bonus essays, posts, content and early access to all of the episodes then you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black and that's Sasha with a C and not an S. Hello and welcome back to the Rebel Author. <laughs> I'm too irritated now. Okay. Yes, I <laughs> this is totally going to be a blooper. Fuck it. I'm just keeping it in. <laughs> Take two, I ladies and gentlemen. This one's going to go. Yep. <laughs> Hello and welcome back finally to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today I am joined by an extra, extra special guest. His name is Stephen de Koenigswater. Now, for anyone who's been a long-time listener, that might not be a name that you recognise. However, Stephen is actually my dad. You might be, yeah, hello dad, hello dad. Uh, You might be wondering why I have invited my father onto the podcast. However, my dad is a creative, has been a long-term creative, and he started out his creative uh, career by doing photography without a camera, which I'm sure he'll explain shortly. But he now runs his own natural health company. And I'm telling you all of this because he didn't give me a bio. Thanks, dad. Um, And his company has gone from a fledgling startup to a seven figure a year company. And I thought, given that we are all creatives and entrepreneurs and people who are hoping to, you know, build our businesses up to uh, the, the scary heights of seven figures, that it would be great to learn from the lessons that he has learned during his career. So, Dad, welcome. Thanks. First thing, let me correct you on a couple of points. One, seven figures is not so high. It is scary, but it's not that much. And you get there fast. <laughs> well, I'm sure there are lots of people who uh, might disagree with you. Lots of people who think seven figures is uh, pretty heady heights from where they're sitting. So tell everyone, um, also correct me, Psh, this is my podcast, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Um, tell everyone a little bit more about you and your journey and how you got to where you are today. Mm, ooh, ooh, where do I start? Um, okay, Hopefully well, not with I'm my very... conception. No. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> I can't remember that far back. Um, yeah, where do I start? Okay, well, I uh, really wasn't very interested in education or school up until I uh, discovered the photography. Um, that became my, my passion in life. So uh, I, I then went off and became a photographer. And uh, I went to this very conservative documentary style um, university. They were in all documentary photographers there. But I was you know, I come from um, this really uh, creative background. I, I grew up in a house with Thelonious Monk, one of the uh, great jazz innovative uh, uh, pianists and composers. And, um, you know, the, he, he was a massive influence on my life and my way of thinking. And I wanted to innovate. And um, I was inspired by um, the, the early photographers, people like Man Ray and Laszlo Maholi Naj. These guys made photographs without a camera, and I just thought that was the bee's knees. And um, I went and did that, but I, of course, had to do it different. And of course, I was doing it in color. Um, and I decided I was going to make these enormous, uh, you know, six foot, seven foot, uh, uh, images, color images of, uh, flowers, uh, made without a camera in the dark room and they were color. Um, and they, they sold pretty well. I have to admit, I, I had some pretty, uh, stellar price tags on them. Um, anyway, I was having great fun. Um, and then you came along. Oh no, I'm not supposed to go into that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, right. Well, long story short, I had this eye infection and um, I went to a very, very top um, ophthalmologist in Harley Street and he was injecting my eye with steroids, cortisone, 
um, whenever I had this problem, I had this problem for years and years and years, and he would just inject my eye, and it would last for months, and I'd have to go to him every day and get two needles in the eye on a, uh, on a daily basis. It, it was it was a horror. It was horrific. Um, but then my then girlfriend said to me, Stephen, you idiot, why don't you try colloidal silver? And I was like, I'm sorry, colloidal what? You know, I, I'd never heard of this stuff. So anyways, um, I thought, you know, I looked at it. It was very difficult to find. We couldn't find any of this stuff because we're going back more than 20 years and there was none on the market. It didn't exist. But we finally found this, this plastic bottle with this yellowy liquid uh, in it. I really didn't like the look of it very much at all. Um, but you know what? I liked staring a cold steel needle in the eye a lot less. So I thought, okay, I'll try this stuff. Let's give it a whirl. Um, I dripped it in my eye and I drank it and a miracle happened seven days later. Um, this problem that I'd had for seven or eight years was gone and no more injections. Um, so, of course, you know, I mean, I am a curious fellow, and I went to my ophthalmologist, you know, he wears a lab coat, and if they wear lab coats, they're supposed to know everything, right? Um, so I, I said to him, um, excuse me, uh, I don't seem to have this problem anymore. I don't, no, no, put your needle away. <laughs> um, tell me why you didn't tell me about this colloidal silver stuff. And he was like, well, because uh, I didn't know about it. Now that was a moment that that, that was that was a, a, a moment of change for me because I really did believe, uh, you know, I'm I'm a generation older than you, and you know, we we from my generation and above, we we worship the lab coat, you know, we respect it, we honor it, it is all knowing and all wise. And for him to say to me he'd never heard of this stuff and yet it had ended a problem that he couldn't handle, that for me was, was a very serious moment of, of caused a moment of introspection. Um, the next epiphany that I had on my road was the fact that, you see, I told you I was a photographer and I'd studied photography at university. Now, back then, and again, I have to emphasize how old I am because <laughs> – you see, we used things called cameras back then. And most of you millennials would not know what one of those is. Um, and these cameras, we put something in them called film. And this had a layer of silver on it. Um, every single photograph up until, oh, I don't know, 20 years ago when this, this whole newfangled computerized digital everything happened, um, every single photograph was made by dint of the fact that silver is oxidized by light. Um, that Without that fact, there would not be a single photograph on any one of those beautiful books that you've got behind you in those bookshelves, there wouldn't be a picture anywhere. Your computer wouldn't even be here without this fact. Um, so, and I had had my fingers in silver every day of my adult life up until this point in time. I knew nothing about health. I knew nothing about Western medicine, allopathic medicine, homeopathic medicine, naturopathy, nothing. I knew nothing about any of it, and I didn't care. But I did know that silver is oxidized by light, and now silver has just saved my eyesight. Wow. This was – it just changed everything. I mean silver had this – fantastically powerful um, gift that it had given to civilization in the form of photography. All right, This is an enormous boon for us that silver had given us. And now I find out that silver also has another gift, that it can kill all of the bacteria that make us sick, all of the virus. Yes, I, yes I'm using the V word, the virus that make us sick, and the fungus that make us sick, candida, et cetera, et cetera. So, but nobody knew this. And what I found out was that the American government was doing their level best to make sure that nobody did find out about this. 
They didn't want any of us to know this. They'd been keeping this secret, suppressing it. Um, you know, uh, it, had, it had been growing in America at that point since about the 70s. It had come back. It had been used, um, you know, uh, 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 since I think 1820 was the first recorded use of uh, an actual electrolytic, uh, electrolytically manufactured colloidal silver. Um, so here is this second amazing gift. There you go. And now I thought, okay, I'm moving to Holland. Um, I could either restart my photographic career over there, over here, or I could play this new game because suddenly I was fascinated and I was going to save the world <laughs> with this silver stuff. And that's the mission that I'm on. And there you go. Okay. So you have climbed your way up to running a health empire. I'm going to call it that because I'm proud of you, Dad. Um, and specifically a seven-figure business. So what strategy did you use to build up your company to this point? I used, uh, well, the simple, the simple, uh, the lowest common denominator of what I have used of my business strategy is a simple quote from uh, a uh, philosopher. Outflow equals inflow. What that means is uh, promote, 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 promote. And that's what I've done, literally. It, it's really that simple. I mean, you have to understand, when I started this business, I barely had a roof over my head. Um, you know, I had a girlfriend who was very busy pushing out babies. and <laughs> I did tell you so to stop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. Uh, the first one was the best one. I should I have stopped. I know, right? <laughs> um, so anyways, I had this screaming demand. I mean, literally the wolves and the bailiffs were sitting at the door. Uh, and, uh, you know, the only support that I had was from my amazing mother who would occasionally help me out. Um, uh, to keep, uh, you know, the, the, the biggest of the wolves away. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, I had a, the other policy that, that really worked for me was a penny jar. I had a very, very big glass one, and I filled that thing up. And I tell you, there were many an occasion when, it, if it wasn't for that penny jar, we would not have had food on the table for dinner. Uh, amazing things. I will always keep a penny jar. <laughs> so you you talk you talked about the fact that um, promotion is the biggest driver and the biggest strategy that you've done. But I know from having ch had chats with you that you took a different angle with your promotion than some of the other companies that were trying to sell similar products. So can you just elaborate a little bit on that out of the box thinking and how you approached selling your products differently to the way that everybody else was selling their products? Because I think this is one of the, the main reasons that you've done so well. All right. Well, um, I there was another company in the Netherlands when I started, and he uh, promoted himself as being the biggest brand of colloidal silver in the country. And it was actually an extremely low quality of uh, product. I, I won't mention the brand name. I mean, the companies that I admire, uh, I will mention their brands because they have good products. Uh, like, for example, a, a silver product that I, I would be using myself if I wasn't making my own better product would be Sovereign Silver. Um, that's quite a good product. Uh, but this other brand was, was and still is, a very low-quality product. But he had very good PR, and what he was doing was he was selling his products online. And um, I chose, I was working uh, with the Holistic Dental Association in Holland, um, and I thought that these guys were the business because uh, they were so knowledgeable. You know, they really knew about vitamins, minerals, health, immune system. Um, so, but they didn't make very good sellers. Um, and on t I met a man who was running the biggest vitamin company in Europe. And he said to me, Stephen, you know, your product is amazing quality. It's your packaging is fantastic. Uh, it's the only packaging that he'd ever seen that actually serves a purpose 
other than to contain the product. Um, and he said, you have got to be in the health food stores. And so I changed my direction um, and I, I said, you know what? This guy, my main competitor, he has one voice online saying his stuff is good. Just one voice, his voice, his website. Maybe a couple of other websites were doing it. But I thought, you know what? What I'm going to do is if I can get all these stores behind me, then that's a whole bunch of different voices saying, actually, it's this brand that is the stuff you should be using. Um, and that worked. That worked. Um, I'll never forget the day that I put my I – I didn't bother putting a store locator on the website until I'd actually hit something like you know uh, 300 uh, stores in the Netherlands. And I put the store locator on, and he – within a week, he went – overboard attacking me calling my brand uh you know all kinds of names everything it was great fun actually because he was horrified because he realized that actually i just pulled the rug out from underneath him <laughs> good old luke so um, i think there can sorry. be so many parallels drawn uh from this to the writing world in that a lot of the strategy for writers is to create the super fans who then promote your books for you. And so this is why I thought it was an interesting, um, interesting to bring you on because yes, you're in a completely different sector in a completely different field, but actually the strategies and the methods that you've used are very, very similar. So how, how did you go about making those super fans essentially in the stores? What did you do to, develop those relationships um when i first went to the stores there was just one little brand uh that had some tiny little uh bottle it was called colloidal silver and it was you know a, a definitely a b brand it was not an a brand nobody understood anything about the product they had no idea what it was that they had a, they just had one bottle on the shelf in case somebody came in and said hey i want to buy colloidal silver because the people in the store didn't have a clue they had no data so i realized that if i was going to change the situation if i was going to get the stores behind me i had to train them i had to give them knowledge i had to give them education and this is what they wanted it turned out this is exactly what they wanted so i made a policy um i well i mean basically what was going on was i had this tiny tiny i call it the smallest warehouse in the netherlands and you 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 remember that because you did a day's work in there once um <laughs> And uh, yes, unpaid, I seem to recall. <laughs> Sorry, I think the line broke up. Yeah, uh, I bet it did. <laughs> um, what was I talking about now? I've lost the plot. Perhaps it was my inheritance. No, I'm only joking. <laughs> it was your smallest warehouse in Holland and uh, your B brand. Oh, right, 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 right. So, you know, I would go to a store, I would pitch them the brand, I would sell them, and then I'd rush back to the warehouse i'd manufacture it i'd bottle it label it cap it throw the order into a box ship it and go out and do another store and at each store that i sold to i would make an appointment i'd go back and i'd give them a training on the product and th this was how it started you know i, I produced a, a folder i produced a flyer i mean i literally started this company in the kitchen sink but that's how powerful these products are um, they literally are, uh, 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 well, they're indescribable almost with, with the, the power of them, but that's not what you want to hear about right now. <laughs> no, I want to hear about the strategy and the methods that you use. And, well, I agree. You know I agree about the products, but the, what I want to draw out is the methods and the tactics you used, because I think those are the things that are transferable to writers. And so um, what I'm hearing is about you know, the awareness raising and the constant uh, creation of information about, you know, a writer's world or, um, you know, giving that knowledge to readers, creating content, I suppose, in a way it's content marketing in our world. That's our language because we can't train our readers as such, but we can uh, put a lot of information out there um, about our story world, our characters, uh, who we are as an author. And, and it's those kinds of um uh, bits of information I think that start to draw in the reader. The other thing that I picked up is that 
you don't create run-of-the-mill products. So for us, ebooks are run-of-the-mill products, but we do have the ability as writers to create premium products. We can create hardbacks, we can go one step further, we can create boxed books with you know short print runs with uh, gold foiling embossed foiling you've gone to the upper end of the health supplement or food whatever you want to call it market and created the best of the best with you know a, a pretty best price tag as well but that's what you pay for you pay for a premium product and actually i think the premium book market is pretty underserved um right now you know there are a few uh, when i go into you know a, a, a waterstones a chain store in in the uk there are a few premium books in there but not many so i'm going to move on now what do you think were the most important actions or steps or strategies or tactics that you took to, to to take you from a six-figure business to a seven-figure business because that's quite a leap so what do you think pushed you over the edge oh that's that's easy social media okay so what do you it was night and day it was night and day i mean i literally i i made the decision i had this one staff member one member on my team um and she had been around in the company for a long time but she was kind of you know, she's having some issues and she wanted to change. She needed to change what she was doing. So I said, okay, why don't you try this newfangled social media world thing and, um, you know, see if you can, see if you can, you know, I don't know, do something. I think they call it posting or something. Oh, dad. So, <laughs> so anyways, um, I, I, just basically because I didn't know what to do with her at the time. So uh, I stuck her in a chair, uh, lobbed a computer at her and said, yeah, get on with it. And um, she did because she's quite a clever girl. She's, she's, she can write really well. Um, and it, it, was, it was just – it was literally an, oh, my God, what's going on, you know. And um, I looked at the – we analyzed all the figures we saw – um, all the stats from the social media, and I mean, it just it just exploded. It literally made the difference uh, between the sixth and the seventh figure. That's precisely what did it at so that point in time. What kind of content were you putting out? What were you doing to generate interest? Well, um, she just started, you know, uh, uh, doing posts on Facebook, um, you know, about products, about um, success stories, people using the products that. Uh, you know the, the 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 benefits that people had had the life changing uh, effects. You know, I mean, it's better, I remember a great one was somebody with MS who, um, you know, for twenty years and uh, was unable to literally get out of a wheelchair, and suddenly after I think it was two weeks being on the Nano Gold, this person was putting on their pants all by themselves. I mean, you know, this is, you got, you can't understand what that means to someone. You know, I mean, it, it's, uh, it's one of the ones that actually still jerks a tear out of me when I, when I read that story. Um, you know, you, you were posting these successes that we've had with these products uh, and it just exploded. The thing that the real difference was that now we're talking directly to the consumers. That was it suddenly we became real to the consumers you know it's like oh wow um yeah i've heard of that brand we went from oh i've heard of that brand to oh hey my my mom she made me use your stuff yesterday I, we've got that bottle in the cupboard you know people I, when people ask me what i do now around here and i say i run the health factory they 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 like oh hey i know that i've got we've got some of your stuff in our house um which is amazing absolutely amazing and, you know, now, um, yeah. Oh, uh, well, I was just going to say, um, I, I'm smiling because so many of the things that you're saying are so crucial to what a writer needs to do as well. You're saying you talked directly to the consumers. We, when we, when we are the most successful, have a direct line of communication with the reader. They are our consumers. They consume our material. And it's so the principles are exactly the same. Getting that yeah. method of talking to your readers is so important, be it via a mailing list, the social media, in-person conferences, however you do it, it doesn't matter what industry you're in. 
talking directly to your consumer, your customer, your buyer, your reader is vital. And the other thing that I really liked that you said is just like with a with an author, you are putting your testimonials out there for the world and also content marketing. But the thing that I liked was you talking about the, the testimonials and they played a massive part. Well, actually, how many of us don't capitalize on those nice reviews that we get from our book? Reviews are social proof. They prove to the outer world that it's not just you on your soapbox about how good your book is or how good your products are. So yeah, I love that there are so many parallels here. Another thing that I wanted to I talk- would go, I would go one step beyond that. What we found out um, is that actually it is the uh, success stories uh, and the testimonials that actually sell the product more that that's that's the clo- that's what actually closes the sale is when people read that and uh, the feedback that we get from uh, our customers is that they want more they want to hear more and more of these testimonials of these success stories that is what drives the sales mm-hmm. that's what drives people into the stores to try the product and then they can come back for more which so- is awesome so my question to the listener is how often are you capitalizing on your reviews? How often are you sharing them? How are you sharing them? Are you pushing them in your emails? Are you posting them on social media? Are you using them as quotes on the back of your hardback book or, or whatever? So yes, right. So I wanted to move on to um, something that I've already mentioned on my podcast previously, which is um, your networking skills and the fact that I know that you've placed a lot of importance on networking. So tell me a little bit about how you network so effectively and why you're so bloody charming. I'm uh, stumped for words there, Sasha. (laughs) I haven't got a clue what to say to that. I'm afraid you've got me. Oh, Um, behave. You know you walk into a room and everybody (laughs) flocks to see you. They do? Yes, especially the women. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that m- might have been maybe you know twenty years ago, but I'm 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 an old man now. <laughs> it doesn't quite I don't quite have the same uh, impact anymore. But um, yeah, well, networking. I mean, yeah, that that's that's. I think actually, it's more the networking side of it has come more to the fore now, now that I'm actually more established because I actually don't really have any competition. And so um, the the networking side of things, people find me now, funnily enough, um, which is amazing. But um, yeah, it is, it is absolutely critical. I think if you are going to um, grow and expand as a business, as a company, and I can't, you know, I'm not speaking as a, as an artist or a writer anymore, but actually when I was an artist, when I was being a photographer, networking was, was everything. I mean, it is utterly, utterly, your business was so dependent on, on your ability to grow that network because, um, that you, that's how you, you, you sell your art is, is with the gift of the gab. You've got to be able to talk the talk. Um, yeah, do you, quite a difficult question. How do I answer that do you, properly? I don't know. Do you remember when I phoned you before I walked into the London Book Fair for the very first time? Yes. Okay, so this is where I'm going with this. You gave me one very simple piece of advice uh, because I said to you I was basically shitting myself and I didn't really know how to go into a room of 25,000 people and speak to anybody, let alone lots of people. And I said to you, how do you... How do you... Um, just strike up conversation so easily how do you get people to come to you and you said to me but one very simple piece of advice and that was just a smile and I, I was like oh but I'm but I've, I've got a heart of gold how am I supposed to smile but I did and lo and behold here I am a few years later with a lovely large network <laughs> and uh, lots of writer friends yeah, I think you're the one who should be giving the advice on networking because you really are the network queen, quite oh, frankly. I don't, I don't know. I stop. It's, I just carry on. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> 
All right, let's <laughs> let's move on before my head swells. Um, right, while writers aren't going to be selling health products, they are going to be selling themselves and their books and sometimes making big deals. So what are your best tips for closing a deal? Never go into a negotiation hungry. That is the worst thing you could ever do. You better make sure you've had not just a meal, but a good meal. You need to feel affluent when you go in to do a deal. The best deals I've ever done were the ones where I could walk into that room and I could take this deal or I could blow it out the window because I don't give a shit. When you walk into a room and you, you're in that position, you, you're, gonna, you're just going to get what you want. And, and quite frankly, nowadays, I walk into, I, 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 you know, I've got this mindset now where I will walk into a room and I won't even, I won't, and it could be a great big deal, but I will literally be in a mindset where I don't know if I even want it. And I, I will constantly do that. I will look at aspects of the deal that make me think, yeah, you know what? I don't actually know. No, I, I, I don't want that. I don't need that. And that instantly puts the other person in a position where they are trying to sell me. Even if I'm trying to sell them, I get them to sell me. So you, you look at a deal and you always try to find the negatives in it. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Even if it's the best deal in the world, mm. even if it's the best deal in the world, I just find a way to shit on that deal. <laughs> I like that. I never, I mean, I know about, you know, trying to have a poker face and whatever, but I'd never thought to try and trick my mind into thinking that I don't want the deal. That's kind of genius. I see why you've got to where you have now. Um, it's not, it's not a trick. It's not a trick. It's, it's, I, I don't like that word. It's a mindset. It's a viewpoint. And it is, it is an ability to just see all aspects. That's, that's all it is. Okay. I think that we learn as much from our successes as we do from our mistakes along the way. What was your biggest mistake along the way? Lord, uh, I just uh, now you, you that's a horrific question because there are so many. <laughs> um, and I, you know, my you have no idea what just flashed in front of my mind in a split second. It's like all the horrors. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing because I, I think it's natural for any person who is in business for any amount of times to have made a considerable number of fuck ups. I know I certainly have, like even just this week I've made a mistake. But um, I do think there are some mistakes that stick out more than others. So are there any that have stuck out to you? Yes. Yes, yes. The biggest one of my art career. It was a huge one. Okay. Um, I, it was, God, oh, when was this? 19, I think it was 99, 1999. Um, and I was, I had written this play uh, called The Crucifixion of Art. And I'd spent, oof, I, I suddenly decided that I could write uh, and I couldn't. <laughs> Um, but I did it anyways. Um, and I produced this exhibition of art. And the reason why I was doing this was because I was, I had this studio in Docklands and, um, every year they decided they were going to do a big show for all the artists who were in this community. And I said, okay, good. Well, I'm going to steal the show this year. I'm going to be the big kahuna and I'm going to, not only am I going to do an exhibition, I'm going to write a play and I'm going to direct it and I'm going to put this thing on. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, I actually did it and I will, I'm super proud of myself. It nearly killed me. Um, it cost me the relationship. You remember her, you hated her. We won't mention her name. Yes, um, I can almost you know, picture exactly who you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what what what, uh, what a wonderful time that was. But anyways, so that's the scene. So I've had this opening night. I've done this play. Complete disaster. Um, 
But anyways, I did it. And I didn't care if it was a disaster because I really, I just was so happy that I got the thing on and I had this amazing body of work. I did the, you know, it, I really, this was a shining moment of glory. Now, at the beginning of the day, um, the, what was he, the director of the whole kind of compound, commune, warehousey thingy comes up to me and he says, you know, Stephen, there's, there's a very, very wealthy buyer um, and he's going to come up and talk to you tonight because he wants to buy your work. So you need to be ready for him and you've got to be polite, Stephen, <laughs> you know. Um, so... <laughs> So anyways, it's after the play. I mean, I, you know, the, you know, we've had conversations about levels and layers of exhaustion that have not yet been properly described to humanity. Um, so I, I was I was at I was at a pretty decent level of exhaustion. I hadn't slept in about a week. And um, I had been drinking champagne, whiskey, and beer. Oh, um, wow. Hours. Okay. And I just was, I mean, I was, I was done. It was so over for me that day. It really was done. Um, and some little, weaselly, nerdy, little, snotty, young, snivelly little character comes up to me and says, um, excuse me, um, could, I, could I talk to you about your artwork? And I said, stop, Bob! <laughs> no, you <laughs> didn't. Like, and that was him! <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't! Oh, my God! <laughs> Oh, wow. That is a massive fail. Oh, total huge fail. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, the next day the director comes up to me and he's like, Oh, Stephen. (laughs) You never fail to disappoint, Stephen. (laughs) What? what, what? I mean, now to, to top it all off, you know, we're trying to clean up the mess and I have this enormous magnificent hangover um was, you know and he's this guy's trying to you know hammer me into the ground at that point anyways it was a huge fail um the whole thing was a total disaster and i loved every second of it <laughs> okay so let's flip that on its head then what are the biggest positive lessons you've learned from going from startup to seven figures uh, uh, sorry, there's a 13-year-old distraction. Could you ask me that question again, please? Yes, I'll punch my younger brother or sister later. <laughs> uh, what are the biggest lessons you've learned go, uh, from going from startup to seven figures? Uh, sorry, Sasha, but that is that's a, that's not a question. That's that's you've just you've just asked me the Bible full of questions. Pick one, really? pick one or two lessons that you've learned. Come on, it's the last question, well, the penultimate question. So what is the, what is the biggest lesson? i tell you what the hardest thing that I've ever had to do as a businessman. One thing that I never saw coming, and this doesn't really apply to you or to, to writers, but it's just what's come to mind. The hardest thing I've ever had to do is to fire someone. Oh, God, I remember the first time I had to do that. It was bloody awful. It was the first person I ever hired, Dad. The first person I ever hired. It was horrendous. Yeah, it is horrendous. But I tell you what, um, it the reason why that has come to my mind is because I grew so much from doing it. You know, as a businessman, as a CEO, it, I realized, you know what, because this person was a friend that I fired. And it was very tough and it really damaged a very dear relationship. But I had no choice Um, because as a CEO, my priority, my absolute priority is to protect that business. You know, that is my livelihood. Um, It is the livelihood of, you know, nearly 20 families. And if someone is getting in the way of that, then you have to cut their throat. You have to be ruthless. And 
it felt afterwards, even though it was emotionally horrific to do it and to go into that room to do it afterwards, it was an amazing feeling because it's like, okay, I have just shown that I will fight to protect this business. Mm. I do think that relates to writers. Maybe not traditional writers in the same sense well perhaps if they had to fire an agent but certainly I think indie authors because although a lot of us don't hire staff in the traditional sense we do hire freelancers I had to fire my first designer for a number of reasons and it it you know it didn't feel particularly nice because I had to get contractual and go back to the contract with this person but I do think it happens. But for a very similar reason, I had to protect my series and protect the fact that I needed to hit certain deadlines. So I think and and looking back, I, I, I would say that I grew because it forces you to do something that you've never done, something that you don't particularly want to do. And you learn I guess both from the positive and the negative from it so you learn what to look out for going forwards in in the people that you work with and you also learn how to react when a situation is negative um, and does need you know cutting off at the neck so to speak okay so one last quick jab in the ribs before I ask you the uh, the podcast's uh, ultimate question you're going to write a book, little birdie tells me. <laughs> I could not. I couldn't bring you on here and not uh, ask you. Yeah. yeah. Hang on. No, that was that one was between the fifth and the sixth rib right there. Was it? Yeah. 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 What do you want? What? 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 Where's the question? <laughs> well, I think you should perhaps. You know, tell everyone what's coming. When when are you looking to release this book? Oh, that's that's, that's just pure evil. <laughs> you really must be good at writing bad guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sorry about that. Okay. So tell everyone a little bit about the book that you're going to write, aren't you, Popper? Uh. Ooh, yeah, Sasha. I almost did it again. There. I almost <laughs> gave you another blooper. Um, <laughs> The book, right. Okay, well, now, it starts with this simple question. Why is gold valuable? Nobody can answer that. And as you know, I have spoken to people right up at the very pinnacle, sharpest, pointiest tip of the financial world. And I have bluntly asked them the same question, and I get the stupidest, most illiterate, uneducated answers from the smartest people. Uh, because uh, it's uh, used in industry, uh, it can be uh, used uh, <laughs> in your teeth, uh, you can, um, let me see, uh, yeah, uh, it's good for uh, conducts electricity to make uh, circuits out of it, uh, <laughs> all kinds of answers but not the right one. Why did gold become valuable thousands of years ago? It wasn't because it's used in circuit boards. It wasn't because it's a uh, commodity um, that is traded in the stock market. It's not because it's yellow and it's not because it doesn't tarnish and all the reasons that people have for gold. <clears throat> and so you're going to answer the question in the book. Ah, yes. Thank you for shutting me up. <laughs> no, no. I'm just saying you're now going to have thousands of listeners keen to hear the answer. So you better write the book, uh, Dad, uh, so that I people can it. buy it, Dad. I get it. I'm a little slow on the uptake here. Okay. All right. I see what's going on. That was a trap. That was a trap. <laughs> I'm delightfully evil, don't forget. Yes, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Right. This is the Rebel Author Podcast. So tell me about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. Oh, Sasha. My goodness. Are you kidding? Where do you think you get it from, sweetheart? <laughs> um, 
Really? Really? You ask me that question? Listen, um, we come from a rebellious line of our family. You know, um, my grandmother was an out-and-out out rebel, and I and you and I are very much following in her footsteps. We are a long line. We come from a long line of people who simply just have tried to fit square pegs into round holes you know i mean that's it's just it's in our nature it's it's yeah <clears throat> you and i we do not think like most other people we just don't you know we we some people are are very happy to you know to just have what what we call in dutch geselligheid which is this this group uh, friendly uh, herd type of uh, thing and you know some people just don't and you and i we we just don't and and that's why we're creative because to be creative you have to go in a unique direction, your own direction. Um, and the most important thing, you know, behind, I think, um, the, you know, rebelliousness isn't really, I, I don't think that's, that's the right word. I think it's just curiosity because when you're curious, you are looking and discovering and creating and, and a creator is, I mean, rebellion should be, in the definition of the word creative, um, even though it isn't, it should be just because the act of creation is, uh, it's a rebellious thing. It is a rebellious act. Okay. Do you have a story you would like to tell us about a time you rebelled? What about, what about some of the times you got expelled? Oh, no, 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 no. Sasha, you didn't go there. No, well, really. I just—I mean, it could be could be the 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 day of my birth. Perhaps that story, Dad. Lord, oh, Lord. oh yes, please do tell that story. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah, why not? <laughs> it's a good one. They'll like it. It is a good one. Well, <clears throat> all right. I was at uh, university. And, um, yeah, well, you had just born and I was at the college bar with my best mate, Mike and Mike was, and I hope he still is, but I wouldn't be surprised if he isn't anymore, but, um, he was an absolute madman, um, complete mad artist. And he decided we were going to go to the police station and offer the police cigars. Um, so we jumped into his car and he's driving, holding the steering wheel with one hand and his pint glass with the other. <laughs> it's not funny. We shouldn't be laughing. But... No, no I, I think I was, I was sipping a bottle of uh, bourbon. I think it was bourbon. Um, <clears throat> I don't drink anymore, but, um, uh, you know, that was college, you know, and you, I was young. So that's my justification. <laughs> Anyways, we got to this police station and I'd somehow, or, we, we literally just kind of drove up over the curb. He was so <laughs> drunk. He was literally, I don't know how the man could walk, let alone drive a car. It just sort of kind of bumped into one of the police cars that were parked there, you know, and, and just kind of parked across the the the, the drive. I mean, you know, it, it, there was no attempt. It would it was kind of like parking it on a roundabout, you know. Um, and we went into the police station. Now, I the warning bells were going off in my head, but not loud enough. They weren't going off quite loud enough, to be honest, <laughs> because I walked into this police station and it turned out that it wasn't just any police station. I mean, this was the um, anti-terror uh, main headquarters for the paramilitarist uh, police of Sussex. 
and you walk in and it's just a wall and you look to your left and there's just a tiny window and there's one cop in there and we walked up to him and I said, hello, constable. I'm a father, eh? Here, have a cigar. And he said, no, thank you. And I just, I don't know what happened, but I, it was the way he said it, his manner. It just, it got up my nose and I grabbed him and I pulled him through the window and I just, I had at him. And the next thing that happened was that there was, I heard this bang and this door that I didn't even see was there flew open and, you know, there was suddenly, you know, six commandos were, had landed on me, um, and I was handcuffed. And basically, the strangest thing happened because I, I the the rage that welled up in me at this point, and I decided I was not going to stay handcuffed, and that was it. I wasn't that. I it I put every my hand don't forget my hands were behind my back handcuffed and I put every erg of strength in my body into those handcuffs and they popped and I actually Shut broke the up. handcuffs. You, your mother noticed the, the scars on my wrist the next day because I cut very deep into my wrists from it. But the thing was, you know, this this like this six of them holding me at all my limbs, two on each limb, whatever, they, they were everywhere. And I, they, they were like, one of them said, Sarge, <laughs> and they just stopped. They didn't know what to do. They'd never seen that before. But the, what they didn't realize was that at that point, <laughs> all they wanted was to, them to put me in a cell so I could get some sleep. Because I mean, that, that took every hour done. I mean. I was completely done. It took every erg of energy. Anyways, so I get out of jail. You know, the, the the duty sergeant, whatever, has to talk to me. And I tell him, you know, next morning with my horrific hangover, I'm telling him, look, you know, I'm really sorry. My, my, my daughter was born last night. I'm a dad, you know, blah, 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 blah. And he said, yeah, 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 you're wet in the baby's head. Well, you know, we got to charge you. You know, you're, you were a bit of a tit last night. How'd you break those handcuffs? And I hadn't even remembered that I'd done that. And, so, and then I, he said that, and I looked at my wrist, and I saw the blood and everything that was on them. But anyways, I ended up in court. Oh, I forgot about this part of the story. I remember you this now. That part. Yeah. Right. So I ended up, I ended up in front of the beak, and um, the, but I had you in a little. What do you call that thing? You know, you were in a, a, on my chest. Yeah. You know, I had, like a I'm sling. wearing a suit, in a sling. Right. I had you on my chest. Um, I'm wearing a sling, and I'm sitting in this row with all of the um, what do you call them suspects or whatever. And they were a bunch of nasty looking. I mean, I was there. I was, you know, wearing my nice suit, got my baby on my chest, and everybody, every bloody civil servant that I went past, you can't bring that baby in here. You can't. And I'm like, yeah, sorry, mum's working. She was actually in the car outside. <laughs> like, no, 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 mum's working. I, I got it. I'm sorry. You know, I mean, I, I'm the only one who can look after the baby today. The prosecutor was this big, tall guy and he, he just you know somebody the guy in front of me just been sent to jail for you know eternity plus 10 years or whatever <laughs> and um it's my turn and the prosecutor starts going and my, my lord mr don't did with maliciousness of forethought and assault said uh, constable and blah 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 and then you went <laughs> and he literally dropped his papers and turned around. He was like, what the devil was that? <laughs> and the, the beak was like, he was looking at me and he said, he said yes, 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 yes. He, he was trying to calm the prosecutor down. He's like, yes, 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 yes. All right, let, let's, hear what, let's hear what Mr. The Waters has to say. He said, there, there, Mr. De Waters. Now, why don't you tell us what happened? I said, well, thank you, my lord. Yes, well, um, I, I, I don't normally do this sort of thing, sir. You know, I, I'm... <laughs> and he was like, 
yes, yes, Mrs. Walter, go away and just don't do it again. And I walked. <laughs> out and the prosecutor that was the only case that man had lost no I, I was so lucky i was so lucky because i could have gone to jail for a very long time for that one yeah um, so basically you, i saved your ass that's, that's you saved my ass yeah yeah you yeah. did yeah. oh i love a good story where i turn up wait i'm the villain how did that how did i turn into a hero you fucking ruined my reputation that's it i can't you play this episode yeah <laughs> okay tell listeners where they can find out more about your products and you um all the w's the healthfactory.com the healthfactory.com or nan all the w's nanominerawater.com um i think we have that one in english that's the information site that may be in dutch um but i think there's some english there for you but the healthfactory.com is in English, but we can't say anything on that. It's just lots of pretty pictures because of uh, the governments of the world not wanting you to be healthy at all, quite frankly, and which is why is they suppress us. A whole other topic for a whole other different type of podcast. <laughs> yes, I had to slip. Okay, well, thank you very much to all of my patrons who support the show. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, you can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black, and that is Sasha with a, with a C. Thank you very much to all of our listeners today, and thank you to our guest, my dad. I'm... <laughs> I'm Sasha Black, you are listening to Stephen de Koningswater, and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Next week I am going back to the craft and I will be talking to Esther Newton, a very dear friend and very special person to me, as Esther was my very first writing tutor. Esther is also an award-winning author and a long-term editor and tutor at the Writers Bureau, and she has also just recently published a new book uh, all about how to make money with short fiction, articles, and fillers. So we will be talking all about those topics and focusing probably specifically on um, short stories. But yes, join us next week for that. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.